So how do we come to forgiveness, let go of resentment? It's not so easy. Even during metta practice, we notice that resentment surface, even uh, with the people that we love and care about, not to mention these uninvited guests that sometimes crash the party, the difficult people. It appears that unhealed anger tugs at our heart, begging for some kind of completion, some kind of rest. I think when we talk about forgiveness that we really need to begin with ourselves, with forgiving ourselves. We've all done things that we regret, that cause remorse, things that we may even flinch when we remember things that cause us to feel shame or embarrassment. So sometimes when we sit down to meditate, these uh, past errors or past difficulties will come to mind. Sometimes we feel like it's difficult to forgive just our normal human imperfection. So learning to forgive ourselves is part of the practice. St. Francis de Sales, a Christian mystic, said, Be patient with everyone above all yourself. Do not be disheartened by your imperfections. How are we to be patient with our neighbor's faults if we are impatient in dealing with our own? So we can see here the link between forgiving ourselves and forgiving others. It's really related to having metta for ourselves. Remember what Suzuki Roshi said, you're all perfect just as you are and you could use a little work. Forgiving ourselves for the work that we need to do. So forgiving ourselves doesn't mean that we ignore the work that we need to do or we ignore our unskillfulness. In fact, understanding and seeing our skillfulness is key. And when we start to understand our own capacity to cause suffering, forgiveness of others becomes easier. A number of years ago, I, I did a retreat, and this is not uncommon, but I did a retreat that it, uh, the main theme of the retreat seemed to be the suffering that I caused others. Afterwards, I wrote a poem called Wreckage. I look behind and see wreckage strewn in the street, in the trees. A tornado has howled through over and over again. Winds of desire, winds of aversion, winds of ignorance. I have torn through eons, whirled through lifetimes, and I have left in my wake shattered houses and barefoot children wailing in the street. I vow to stay on this path of awakening, if for no other reason than to save those blown about by my winds of destruction. When we see and understand the pain that we've caused others, we can be motivated to practice. And that commitment is, is important. It's huge, that commitment to practice in order to uh, not perpetuate suffering in this world. And if we have that commitment in our hearts, I think that makes a forgiveness of ourselves easier. We can forgive ourselves for the mistakes that we make along the way. In this retreat that I wrote this poem, I came to this understanding that as long as we're not fully enlightened, 
even with our best intentions, will cause harm. It's a very sobering thought, but it's the truth. In this exploration, it takes strength to, to, re to realize uh, the suffering that we cause. And in this exploration, it's important to understand the difference between remorse and guilt. Remorse is understanding that we did something unskillful, something that caused suffering, and it's considered a beneficial mind state because it motivates us to, to um, work, do the work we need to do. Guilt is when we add in a story that I'm a bad person because of this. So guilt is when we take what we've done that's unskillful and we create a sense of self around it. I'm a bad person, I did this, I'm no good, I'm unworthy. This is not considered a useful mind state. So remorse, however, can motivate us. When we start to understand our own capacity for causing pain, we start to feel some humility, and this can be very useful in forgiving others. There's a poem by Thich Nhat Hanh that I just love, and many of you will have heard of it, but I think it's so beautiful that I want to read it uh, anyway. It's called, Please Call Me By My True Names. Do not say that I'll depart tomorrow because even today I still arrive. Look deeply. I arrive in every second to be a bud on a spring branch, to be a tiny bird whose wings are still fragile, learning to sing in my new nest, to be a caterpillar in the heart of a flower, to be a jewel hiding itself in a stone. I still arrive in order to laugh and to cry, in order to know and to hope, and the rhythm of my heart is the birth and death of all that are alive. I am the mayfly metamorphosing on the surface of the river, and I am the bird which, when spring comes, arrives in time to eat the mayfly. I am the frog swimming happily in the clear water of a pond, and I am also the grass snake who, approaching in silence, feeds itself on the frog. I am the child in Uganda, all skin and bones, my legs as thin as bamboo sticks, and I am the arms merchant selling deadly weapons to Uganda. I am the 12-year-old girl, refugee on a small boat, who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. And I am the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. I am a member of the Politburo with plenty of power in my hands, and I am the man who has to pay his debt of blood to my people, dying slowly in a forced labor camp. My joy is like spring, so warm it makes flowers bloom. My pain is like a river of tears, so full it fills up the four oceans. Please call me by my true names, so I can hear all my cries and my laughs at once, so I can hear that my joy and pain are but one. Please call me by my true names, so I can wake up, and so the door of my heart can be left open, the door of compassion. So we see that understanding our capacity to cause suffering is actually a journey of joy because it opens our hearts. It breaks through the, the illusion of separation with others. So the deepest forgiveness comes out of understanding, 
understanding our own suffering and understanding others' suffering. And when we look deeply, we begin to see that all suffering comes out of ignorance. We begin to see that when we inflict pain on others or when others inflict pain on us, that the roots are in not understanding and blindness and good old human imperfection. There's a quote by Alan Wallace that describes this beautifully. Imagine walking along a sidewalk with your arms full of groceries and someone roughly bumps into you so you fall and your groceries are strewn on the ground. As you rise up from the puddle of broken eggs and tomato juice, you're about to shout, you idiot, what's wrong with you? Are you blind? But just before you can catch your breath to speak, you see that the person who bumped into you actually is blind. He too is sprawled in the spilled groceries and your anger vanishes in an instant to be replaced by sympathetic concern. Are you hurt? Can I help you? Our situation is like that. When we clearly realize that the source of disharmony and misery in the world is ignorance, we can open the door of wisdom and compassion. So tomorrow we will add in uh, the difficult person, we'll invite the difficult person into our meditation. And as I said, that sometimes will uh, more likely bring up resentment for people. So I'd like to share uh, a few ideas of the Buddha on how to work with resentment and um, aim towards forgiveness. So one uh, method the Buddha gave for working with resentment is to do metta for the easy person first. So we're already doing that. And the idea with that is that we um, fill our hearts with the easy person and then take that power of metta to working with the difficult person. And that's why we've suggested as much as, as, much as possible to hold off on working with the difficult person so that we can um, build up the strength of our metta. Another idea the Buddha gave was to, um, to see and clearly how we are the ones that suffer from resentment not the people that we're resenting. It's, it's, it's kind of a funny trait of us humans, but when we're angry at somebody or resenting them or unable to forgive them, we actually think that we're making them suffer. <laughs> but we're the ones that are suffering. It's, it's, it's our hearts that are hurting. <laughs> so it can be interesting and useful to remember that. Another um, idea the Buddha gave was to remember the good in the person. And we talk about this when we do metta, that, to, that what um, helps metta rise is, is to see the good in the person. So we can even do that with a difficult person. We can um, see that even though they're difficult, they have some good qualities. I like to do this with um, snowmobilers. I'm a, I'm a cross-country skier, and snowmobilers and cross-country skiers have a very uneasy relationship. Um, you know, I go to the woods because I love the quiet and the clean smelling air <laughs> and uh, the snowmobilers come by. So for me, it's an ongoing practice of, um, of, of working with, with how I feel. And I like to try to see the good in the snowmobilers when they come by. Like sometimes they come by with their kids on the back of the snowmobile. And I think, you know, how beautiful that they're spending this time with their kids, you know, out in the woods. It's, and, uh, you know, really cultivating relationship with their children. 
or sometimes they will um, slow down when they come by me, and if there's a, like a line of them, the first one will put out his hand to the ones behind to tell them to slow down. I think, well, isn't that just beautiful that they're, you know, taking care of when they pass me? Or if there's been a big snowfall, um, they actually do make a trail. <laughs> so, uh, so, you know, it's, it's like, it's like I, ca I cultivate this ability to um, see the good in them. I did that too. I, I live in the country and um, I lived on a road that was really in bad, bad shape. It had huge potholes and was, um, hadn't been fixed for years and the state wasn't finding money to fix it and we were very happy about this um, because nobody went on it then. <laughs> and it, it is kind of the major road between two towns. So they fixed it a couple years ago and um, there were all the crew members you know, on the road and they did a major fix and so there was noise and I knew that it was going to bring more cars and stuff. So I would consciously, you know, think of the crew members and how they were, you know, working to probably support their families and how they were making the road really nice for cars, you know, so that the people who are driving wouldn't um, get, like, broken axles. This road was really bad. And uh, you know, just trying to remember the good. Another thing that's happened since the road got fixed is um, motorcycle uh, clubs like to come, I live near this waterfall, and so they have these little books where they go on these little tours and check off all the stops they go to. Well, we're on, I think we're on the list for a number of books, so on Saturday and Sunday, these big groups of motorcycles will come by, and um, I've made my peace with them, but my partner was still kind of like having trouble with them. He lived even more isolated than I did before we had um, bought this house, and uh, so his, his brother owns a Harley Davidson. So he, he says that when the motorcycles are coming, you can hear them coming, he tries to imagine that it's his partner coming to, uh, to and his brother coming to see him. And so, you know, finding a way to kind of like soften the resentment. Another idea that the Buddha gave is to have compassion for people because uh, they will reap the um, fruits of their actions, basically understanding karma, understanding that when people cause suffering, suffering comes back to them. And this isn't to be cultivated in order to get revenge on them, <laughs> to think, oh, good, don't get what they deserve, <laughs> but rather to open our hearts um, and, and to really care because we know that they will suffer. There's a certain political um, figure, I'm not going to say any names because I'm not going to assume that we all um, agree on politics, but there's a certain political figure that I, I sometimes have trouble with. And so I imagine this person and, um, and I, I imagine, you know, how... I think about the decisions this person has made and I think about the huge karmic debt that is being accumulated um, for him. And, and when I do that, I actually find that my heart can open a little bit and, and feel compassion for um, uh, this, this terrible suffering that is, has to come for him out of, out of the actions. So, so understanding this law of karma can help open our hearts. Another reflection the Buddha suggested is understanding how um, suffering comes from suffering. So really, this is, as I was saying earlier, understanding deeply the suffering of the person who's causing us pain. I sometimes use this reflection with my family of origin. I, like um, many people here, came from what we call a dysfunctional family. I haven't met a functional one yet, but, but <laughs> maybe they exist. <laughs> but sometimes I really, um, you know, it's taken a lot of years, and I'll talk about that a little more later in the talk, but, but I really reflect on how 
um, the suffering that I feel like I've uh, had to endure in my family actually has come down through generations and that you know my parents did the best that they could but because of the upbringing that they got you know and then because of the upbringing that my grandparents got and just understanding that um, that when we cause others to suffer it's because we're suffering ourselves it can help um, take away a little of the hostility Henry Longfellow said if we could read the secret history of our enemies, we would find in each man's life a sorrow and a suffering enough to disarm all hostility. I think that's true. There's a story that I'd like to read from Sylvia Bornstein's book, um, Pay Attention for Goodness Sake. It's about a young man who was at a meditation retreat. And when he uh, came to this retreat for a week, he found himself uh, suddenly replaying this traumatic memory over and over in his mind um, that he hadn't really expected to happen. So he told her the story. He said, I was coming home through a neighborhood where I shouldn't have been walking alone late at night. It's really dangerous to be there. I should have known better. Suddenly a man jumped out behind a building, obviously very high on drugs, and he had a gun. He held a gun to my chest and he said, I'm going to kill you. Give me what you have. Of course, I immediately gave him my wallet. It had a lot of money in it, $600. But then he kept the gun at my chest, waving it back and forth. He kept saying, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. I saw that he was very confused. It seemed like he was saying this over and over again to get up the nerve to actually do it. I was terrified. I said, wait, stop. I'll give you something that's very good. And so he wound up giving him his watch. But the man kept saying, I'm going to kill you. And then finally he said to him, listen to me. You did very well. You did great. You have no idea how much money is in that wallet, and that watch is worth a lot. When you go home, your friends are going to be so proud of you. They're going to think you did really wonderfully. Now go home. And actually worked. The man left. <laughs> Remember our other Dharma talk? You did great. <laughs> And so, um, so Brett continued his story. So what happened to me when I began to sit is that I would be sitting and the memory of this experience would come up and it would play like a movie, which isn't uncommon when people have suffered trauma. And he said that, you know, he, he just would keep happening and then he'd go through the whole thing, be really terrified and then feel a sense of relief and it would keep happening. And um, then finally he said, two days ago it started to feel like a horror movie that I'd seen so many times and I knew where the bad parts were. I knew it turned out okay, so the story would replay, and he wouldn't get terrified, so there was some healing. But the greatest healing uh, comes now. Yesterday, Brett continued, something new happened. The whole movie replayed in my mind, but I was relaxed, and suddenly I thought, that man who attacked me was doing what he was doing because he had the life that he had before that. And I was me because I had the life before that. And if I had had his life, I would have been him, and I would have been doing what he was doing. And if he had had my life, he would have been me, being me. When I realized that, I forgave him. Then I felt much better. That, that understanding that um, suffering comes from suffering, and that feeling of not separation, not judgment, not different, And 
then one other idea that the Buddha gave uh, when you're feeling resentment, and I, I love this one, is um, to give a gift to the person who um, you're angry with. And, and a gift that I often like to give with somebody who maybe annoys me is um, to pay them a compliment. It's a kind of gift. Um, and what we find when we give some gift to a person that annoys us is that there's a connection. That gift creates a connection, and the connection is what allows us to relax and to forgive. And that's what our hearts really want anyway. Our hearts, in their depth, want that connection. But sometimes these techniques just can't cut it. When there's old wounds or very deep wounds, very painful wounds, sometimes uh, and none of these techniques just mean anything. And in that case, forgiveness is often um, a process that can take a long time. We were talking, Patricia and I, a little bit about this this afternoon, and she said, in that case, she says, forgiveness is often a direction. It's not a destination, it's a direction. And I, I really agree with this way of seeing it. You know, that we bring a sincere inquiry to our experience, and we move towards forgiveness, and we may feel forgiveness at sometimes, we may not feel forgiveness at others. But it's, it's like a way we orient ourselves. So I feel like the beginning process then with forgiving somebody may be just acknowledging that we don't want to forgive them. So we start with acknowledging the resentment in our hearts and the closed-heartedness, and uh, we allow not forgiving. I think we have to really start with where we're at. And what I found is that when I really acknowledge that, that resentment, that not forgiving, um, it's so painful that it actually motivates me to look deeper. It can be a motivation to um, want to continue the inquiry. And for many of us, what this then means is that we, um, we need to open to um, the feelings, the feelings that are uh, behind the closed heart. And there may be many of them, and it may be a process that takes time. I know that, for example, with some of my family pain, years, you know, anger, resentment, judgment, um, hurt, but allowing uh, the process to unfold, it does. I, what I found is that when you allow the space, you move. You do move, and it might not be fast, but, but you move through various feelings until um, we get to the core of usually some kind of vulnerability and compassion. And I think you can't skip the layers. <laughs> we wish we could, you know, just say, oh, I forgive somebody. We can orient in that direction, but my own experience is you can't skip the process. It's not a real forgiveness, then. There's a poem by uh, uh, Naomi Shahid Nye that has a line that I just love. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. That r rings true with my experience, that it's acknowledging the pain is what uh, brings us through to the other side of forgiveness and kindness. It's so fascinating. Even after years of, like I said, working with my family, I was on this retreat that uh, Patricia was on in Burma in February. And I found myself coming to this place of just really deep sorrow about my family. And the sorrow was that even though we love each other deeply, we cause each other a lot of pain. And there, there was little resistance to just 
the truth of that. It's back to the beginning of this talk when I said that, you know, when we're human, we will cause pain. And being able to hold that in our hearts with a sense of care. There's one person in my family who I've done a lot of healing work with, and um, every, every year or two, uh, he kind of backslides a little bit and sends me a letter. And um, when I, I got one of these letters a couple of weeks ago. So what I do when I get the letters, the first I'll skim it really fast to see if I can deal with it. <laughs> because in the past, they've, they've, some of these letters have been deeply hurtful. But I notice that as I heal more, you know, it gets easier. So I, I skimmed this letter and I said, okay, I think this is going to be okay. I can do this. And so then I read it really slow and carefully. And I found that even though there were parts of the letter that were kind of attacking, what I really wanted was to understand. I wanted to understand what he was in his heart saying. And I could see that what he really wanted was connection. And that he was saying in the letter, it's hard for me. This is hard for me. But what I really want is connection. It's really, for me, it's lovely to get to this place of after years of work. So, so not being hard on ourselves if, if we have resentments that take time and um, to really honor that process. And then we can do amazing things. There's a story I found in a magazine. Uh, it's about a woman whose daughter was murdered in uh, South Africa. Her daughter had gone to do some uh, work uh, to help out some people and then um, there was like a riot, and she was killed. In a, um, and so what happened is uh, this woman wound up going, the mother of the daughter who was killed, wound up going to South Africa, and she started this whole um, social service agency to work with the very, in the very neighborhood where her daughter was um, killed. She said, when you see whole towns of tin shacks with people who don't have enough to eat, no education, then you begin to understand the rage that killed Amy. So she came to a deep understanding of the process. And then in the end, she actually wound up meeting with, um, with the, the two, two of the men who had gone to jail for killing her daughter. And they both, you know, over the time, they had also really felt deep pain for what they had done. And um, now she winds up working with them. Uh, to better everybody's lives. So last night Patricia talked about compassion. Tonight I talked about forgiveness and compassion. But we understand that suffering and pain isn't all of life. So the next part of my talk, I'd like to talk about the third Brahma Bihara. So the first one is metta. The second one is compassion. And the third one is uh, sympathetic joy. So we're making a, a big shift here. There's a quote from the Buddha and the Dhammapada that might help us make this shift. He says, live in joy and love even among those who hate. Live in joy and health even among the afflicted. Live in joy and peace even among the troubled. Look within, be still. Free from fear and attachment, know the sweet joy of the way. So sometimes the Buddha gets a bad rap for, for um, 
you know, focusing on suffering, but actually there's a lot in the scriptures about happiness and joy. And one way uh, to access joy is this, this Brahma Vihara of sympathetic joy or empathetic joy, which is really about taking delight in the happiness of others, taking delight in the joy and success of others. So mudita is the word in Pali. It means rejoicing, gladness, getting pleased. The Buddha called it the mind deliverance of gladness because it liberates our minds from contraction, like the other Brahma-viharas. So traditionally, there's one phrase that's used for this Brahma-vihara, and we're not going to have a lot of time to practice it, but just to give you the information, uh, the one phrase is loosely translated as, may your happiness and success never end, or may you always be happy and successful. And we start with a person who we know is happy right now, and we contemplate their happiness, and then we go through the categories contemplating the happiness of the different people. And traditionally, you skip yourself, though. Some people do it for themselves, too. And this is compared to how um, a parent feels at a, about a child in their youth when they're developing new skills and when they're having success, and, um, and there's that feeling of just happiness for them, that of all that they can do and they're learning. When I went to this graduation on Friday night, I thought of it at the time as, you know, this is like a mudita initiation or something, because all these young people were so proud of their achievement that they'd finished high school and, you know, they had their plans and their dreams and it really a celebration of um, mudita, people feeling happy for, for them. So compassion orients to the suffering in life and mudita orients to the happiness and joy in life. So in that way, it's an easier Brahma-vihara to develop, but it's actually said to be the hardest of all of them. And I remember just being surprised when I first heard that. But we don't really easily celebrate other people's happiness and success. It can bring up um, our own deep notions about loss and gain and about abundance and scarcity and about our own feeling of completion or satisfaction with our life. So it, it like, like all the Brahma-viharas, it brings up its own things to purify, its own uh, mind states to purify, purifying mind states such as envy or avarice or judgment, comparing. But uh, it's, it's definitely worth the work, because the Dalai Lama says, it increases our chance for happiness six billion to one. <laughs> it seems like pretty good odds. <laughs> you know, if you're just banking on your own happiness, but if you're banking, you can be happy about everybody. <laughs> so uh, some of the uh, mind states that we work with and that get purified by sympathetic joy are Envy, for example, envy being the inability to appreciate others' happiness or even to endure others' happiness. You know, we hate to see other people happy. And we lose our focus on our own lives and, you know, focus on others. I was very uh, surprised to see this in my life. I, I, I didn't expect it. <laughs> and it came up, um, I remember a number of years ago, there was a teacher here at, um, or another person here at IMS that I 
had terrible envy over. And it was like she was my envy trigger. I would come to IMS and I would see her and oh, I would just, at first I didn't like her. I thought that, I didn't know that it was envy. I just thought I didn't like her. Um, because I couldn't even recognize the envy in my heart. And then over time I, I could recognize it and um, over time I started to actually be able to see where that came from and to actually just feel it. You know, the kind of the, my own feelings of inadequacy. And then over, this took years. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm really slow. <laughs> um, and so then finally it got to the point where I actually like um, beca became friends with her. And now sometimes when she does something new or she has some kind of success, I actually feel mudita. And it's like so nice, you know, to move from, from envy to mudita. There is a liberation in the heart and to be able to celebrate her successes. A sympathetic joy also uh, works with conceit. And what's interesting in Buddhism is that there are three kinds of conceit. Not just thinking you're better than others, it's actually thinking you're better than others, or equal than others, or less than others. They're all considered conceit because they're all revolving around the ego and comparing with others. We do this in meditation a lot, no? You know, in the hall. <laughs> like, uh, oh, look at that person, they sit so, they don't move at all, they're so quiet. Look at their smile on their face, oh, they're much better yogi than me. Or look at that yogi going for another cup of tea. You know, they really, you know, I'm much better yogi than them. <laughs> it, it's endless, right? We could just go on and on, and we do it. <laughs> so this sympathetic joy kind of cuts through that tendency in, in, in directing ourselves towards sharing others' happiness. Another a mind state that is, is said that um, sympathetic joy uh, works with is boredom, that it eliminates boredom because it gives us so many reasons to feel happy and connected that, that we don't feel bored, that we're actually um, present, noticing the little things in life. So there's certain mind states that encourage this feeling of sympathetic joy. One of them is rapture that Michelle mentioned the other night, or joyous interest, um, this ability to be open to joy. And the Buddha got actually quite um, specific about the different kinds of rapture we can feel. There's five actually kinds. Um, minor happiness, like hairs raising on the arm. Momentary happiness, like flashes of lightning. Showering happiness that breaks over the body over and over again in waves. Uplifting happiness that's said to be so powerful that one can levitate. <laughs> I haven't seen anybody do that yet. And pervading happiness that fills the whole body with bliss. So you see his reputation isn't deserved, the one for being only talking about suffering. Gratitude also in, um, helps nourish sympathetic joy, just really being able to appreciate uh, the things that we have. You know, if, if we access enough stillness to pay attention, we see that we live in an amazing universe. One thing I like to do sometimes, I was just doing it right before this talk, is I like to look at flowers. And I like to go, like, look at an iris, for example, and try to uh, have the mind frame that I've never seen an iris before. And when you do that, like an iris is incredible, you know? 
or looking like I look to look in the top of flowers and look down in the middle and again just kind of clear my mind of ideas and it's like whoa <laughs> you know the psychedelic <laughs> the world's like that it's just it's an amazing if we stop and and we take the time to really look we see that we live in a world of such beauty and retreats a lovely time to be able to do that and meta retreats even a better time to be able to do that because we give you permission to <laughs> you know to just really take delight in the little things in life Lastly, I would say that contentment is uh, what most um, nourishes sympathetic joy. So contentment, that feeling of being satisfied with our own um, lives and with, and with our hearts, that sense of having enough, of not needing or wanting more. So all of the Brahma Viharas, they balance each other. Like um, compassion and mudita balance each other because compassion uh, keeps mudita from just degenerating into a Pollyanna attitude that everything in life is just great all the time, you know, into like sentimentalism or kind of an ignorant optimism. So compassion keeps mudita balanced in that way. But mudita keeps compassion balanced in that mudita keeps us from, from drowning in the enormous uh, depth and breadth of suffering that we see in this world. It gives us enough solace and happiness and uplifting that we can hold the suffering in the world, energizes us. All of these Brahma Viharas uh, require um, equanimity. And that's the fourth Brahma Vihara that you might hear about tomorrow night. Um, and so equanimity is, is that ability to understand that both joy and sorrow weave through the web of life a life that, that's constantly changing. So even though we say in sympathetic uh, joy, we say, may your happiness and success never end, we know that it will. It's an interesting paradox to, to um, wish that and also have the understanding that life changes, that things are always changing, and that we all feel the, 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 um, the range of human emotion from joy to sorrow. So equanimity is a, is a very calm happiness that can hold all of that and it, that can accept life as it is. We have a few minutes. I thought it might be interesting to just try like five minutes of sympathetic joy. Are you into it? Just take a minute to kind of just stretch just sitting there. Because we've been sitting a while, just, yeah. Don't worry, I won't keep you too long, like five minutes. settling into our cushion or the chair, maybe connecting with a few breaths to center in the body.
Now bringing to mind somebody that you know who's happy right now, who's experiencing success or happiness. Reflecting on, on that happiness and the good things happening in that person's life. Then bringing to mind either an image or a sense of that person and wishing may your happiness and success never end. A very open-hearted wish again, not emphasizing results, but just the wishing. May you always be happy and successful. Your happiness and success never end. wish bringing to mind your benefactor, reflecting on any happiness or any success, any joy in that person's life or that being's life. May your happiness and success never end. Connecting with your dear friend, if you wish. And reflecting on whatever happiness you see in his or her life. Maybe imagining that that bird is happy, we don't know for sure. Wishing that that bird will continue to be happy. 
thinking about all the joy in this world, the beauty, the happy things that happen. May the happiness in this world continue. May the joy continue. I'd like to leave you tonight with wishing that your happiness and joy be increased six billion fold through the contemplation of the happiness of others. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.